This week on Life and Faith. Material and economic life, the stuff of food and good things and beautiful things and comfort is all good and that we should enjoy all these things. They are good for us and they're right to enjoy and we should fully enjoy them. But beyond a certain limit, they stop being good. You've got to be quite serious about religion in order to be an atheist. Literally to go home is to face ground zero. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. So there's a lot Christians could do besides making a lot of noise and waving a lot of flags. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. We've been bombarded lately by headlines about soaring costs of living, inflation going up, increasing mortgage stress, electricity bills going through the roof. I know about that one. Everything seems more expensive, Justine. So naturally, people are looking for ways to cut costs. Yeah. And I've noticed that, especially this year, it's like this very reliable staple of tabloid news, especially, (laughs) where you see stories with headlines like... Grocery diary behind mum of six's $4 family meals. (laughs) Or um, this one I like as well. Frugal mum reveals how she cut her grocery bill in half. These stories are honestly very clickbaity for me. I I have to read it, even though I'm probably not going to implement what they say. You're not tagging it up? No, but that's one way of seeing how those kinds of things that we're living amongst, like the rising cost of living, are actually affecting people in the day-to-day. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the frugal mum or dad Yes, let's remember. About the rising cost of living, tap into an area that today's guest on Life and Faith calls everyday economics. Jonathan and Kim Cornford have two daughters and they live an ordinary suburban middle-class life in Bendigo. This is how they would describe it in Victoria. But over the course of their marriage, Jonathan and Kim have made some small but significant shifts to get by on less to the point that, and this is a credible list, Justine, they only send one bag of rubbish to landfill each week. Everything else is composted. Mm-hmm. Now, I can relate to this a bit because we've reintroduced composting in our house. And it makes a massive difference, actually, to the amount of rubbish going out. So I'm feeling good about that one. Um, <laughs> but less so on this one. Even though they're a family of four, they use less than half the electricity of the average Australian family. Yep, through solar panels. Yeah, that's pretty good. And this one might be the most controversial. Both parents work part-time and always have, which seems like a big call when everything's getting more expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And Jonathan is outlining the reason for these choices in his book, Coming Home, Discipleship, Ecology and Everyday Economics. Yeah, now you've engaged with this, you've written about it as well. What captured your interest, first of all? Yeah, well, I guess I've been feeling increasingly guilty about my way of life because, Mm -hmm. for example, I can just run down to the supermarket and grab a packet of ham if we need that for school lunches. But the trays that it gets served in, and I rarely go to the deli counter, but the trays that it gets served in are not recyclable. Plastic, yeah. Yeah, and then like we've heard fairly recently that soft plastic recycling has also fallen over, right? I mean, not that I would imagine that my individual choice to recycle plastic is going to dent the problem in any meaningful way. But the problem is the fact that we live in a convenient society, right? That is about just taking all these resources Mm. and just using them and then throwing them in the bin. And not that I know much about this at all, but I'm fairly sure that plastic requires oil 
So it's like, on the one hand, you want to support environmental efforts to uh, reduce our consumption of natural resources, and yet our way of life depends on plundering those resources. No, it sounds a like cost to it's a really this, right? big cost, and it's not like the resources aren't infinite. So I saw this book, and I thought this is going to have some great ideas as to how I can make some better choices in my life, and and kind of feel like, you know, I'm not part of the problem, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and how did it go? Well, to be honest, I felt a little bit guilty, (laughs) but I also got the distinct impression that living with less might in some weird way amount to living a more rich existence at the same time. But let's let Jonathan convince you of that. So my household, the way we live is by one mode of looking at really a, a fairly ordinary suburban Australian mode of living. So we live in a house, uh, in a three-bedroom house for four of us. Uh, we live in the social geography of the suburbs. We buy our food at supermarkets. We have multiple appliances in the house, access to you know streaming internet, things like that. There are some things that we have done differently, which are, go to the basic economic structure of our household, and they've been conscious choices uh, that we've made over a period of time. And they have affected how some of those things play out. But also, probably more, it's about the extent to which we have gone down uh, certain paths. Uh, so it's not around living in a completely different mode, but actually a question of limitations of how far we've gone down a certain mode. So so right at the core of the, a decision uh, Kim and I made when we got married uh, over 20 years ago now, was that we decided we were going to live on a low income. We were people being shaped very strongly by social justice values. And it was a decision around live simply so that others may simply live. And turned out that living simply is quite a complicated matter. And we've (laughs) we've had to invest a lot of time and energy in thinking, actually, what does that mean in all sorts of life decisions? But we've right at the core of that has been the idea that we can and should be able to live off a lower income than is the expected norm in a highly affluent nation. At the heart of that decision is also a recognition. And this was a key moment for us in in helping shape that decision was um, we both spent a bit of time in Laos while I was doing my PhD. And we were there to learn about poverty and particularly how first world nations are involved in the economic structures that create or sustain poverty in the third world. We went to learn about poverty, but actually what we learned about in, in Laos was we, we did learn about poverty, but not just poverty. We learned about life, actually. We saw lots of richness of life in this, uh, what was then and still is one of the poorest nations in the world by one standard, but another standard with rich cultures and uh, rich community life in all sorts of ways. And we experienced culture shock coming back home and mm-hmm. just realizing how incredibly, ridiculously affluent Australia is by comparison. So that's stood us in good stead ever since to have, I guess, a entirely different frame of reference for what we think is a decent standard of living in terms of, you know, what underpins a, a basic quality of life and sense of dignity and satisfaction and so on and so forth. You've taken pains to reinforce this idea that you're not living an existence that is that different, let's say, from the norm. And you've mentioned how you've had that different frame of reference, but how do you maintain that, especially given 
the fact that everything around us, not just the advertising or the devices that we use, but even just other people and how they live, how do you continue to stay the course that you have chosen for your family? That's a great question, Justine, because we are so bombarded by images of what norm is and what we should be expecting out of life. And all the studies in psychology show that we are So we're fundamentally social people, we know that, but we live by comparing ourselves to others, actually. So that's how we understand our own position. And really our sense of satisfaction or happiness is done by comparing ourselves to others, but specifically those above us, (laughs) not those below us. It seems almost hardwired into us that, that humans do that. We compare our position to those above us. We're being bombarded by the images of media that it is always a movement upwards that we're being drawn to. So how have we maintained it? One is simply by having recognised the power of media and to try place disciplines on our exposure to it. So that means we've tried to watch less, uh, consume much less TV than the average Australian family, much less internet. So with our children in particular, we placed uh, much stronger restrictions on things like computer and internet access when they're young. And we've, we've allowed that access to come on much more slowly than most Australian households would would seem um, authoritarian or perhaps <laughs> by some people's views it might be tyrannical the idea of denying people complete open slather access but that's been precisely for the reason of under we've understood what a massive deluge we're under in terms of communication from a consumer culture so one way to begin to resist that is to limit its access in your life and to limit your own exposure to it and the other way is to buy continually cultivating alternate frames of reference. So to be continually paying attention to the other side. So another decision that we've made for most of our marriage, in fact, all of our marriage, is to live in poorer suburbs. Um, So we've lived at the lower end uh, in terms of income, actually, where we belong in terms of Australian society, but we could choose to live elsewhere, I guess. But um, living in suburbs which are doing it rougher have often have... uh, So in Bendigo, we live in a a suburb which has... uh, a reputation for being the suburb in Bendigo where you don't go. Uh, And that helps you maintain a very different perspective on life. And certainly for our daughters, we know um, in lots of ways, they're middle-class kids with a middle-class outlook, but they know that they're privileged and they know there's a lot of people doing it tougher and they know there's a whole other side of the story. And although they have a lot less than a whole bunch of their peers in all sorts of ways, they know that they also highly privileged. And that's been a real gift, I think, to have that alternate frame of reference. But it's got to be something you've got to cultivate. It's not just there to tap into. You have to seek it and cultivate it. When you talk about the sorts of changes that you've made to your life, how do you do that with a partner? I mean, it's great if you have a willing partner, but I'm sure that there's still plenty of difficulty if you want to make these kinds of radical choices. We never made any massive uh, life-changing decisions about how we're going to live or anything dramatic. Right from the point when we were married, we had, and I guess a core part of our marriage was, and central to our marriage was our shared value basis. I think cultivating your your value basis in any relationship is really at the heart of a of a successful relationship. So that was right there from the beginning, and that meant we bit by bit just made in all sorts of small steps, just conscious choices here or there, not to go down this path. Or So we only ever worked part-time and therefore we never had to choose to try and constrain our consumption from a high income to a low income because we never got there in the first place. It was never 
something that we missed. So we weren't having to choose against something that we'd previously had. So we had habits already of beginning to think about our consumption from our value basis. And that just built and grew over time as we enriched that, deepened that as to what that meant and then how it shapes the other parts of our life. I think these questions, uh, particularly for any young listeners, people you know in their early twenties setting out on down the road, this it's a critical time to be thinking about this stuff because it's so much easier to begin to uh, set the structures of your life from that position on than midway through your life to change course, and that can be done. I don't want to, uh, but it, it's harder and mm. and it's a different equation. And if that's the equation you're looking at, again, I would say, and particularly if it's a question of where you're looking with different values between one partner and the next, I always recommend taking small steps, one step at a time. Every now and then, I think some people take big life-changing courses. I wouldn't want to rule that out. And that can be a great thing. But mostly, I think it's more helpful to make small steps in a certain direction. In terms of the changes that you've made in your household and especially the decision for both of you to work part-time, how does that affect the dynamic, I suppose, of your house? Because we know that in most Australian households, women are often doing more of the care work and men are more often um, engaged in full-time paid work outside the home. And so there are some structures there that kind of reinforce this gender divide when it comes to domestic work or looking after children. If you're both in part-time work, how has that worked out for you on that front? And I am aware I'm asking you and not Kim. (laughs) Exactly. So right there, you got a chance of a biased answer. Um, There are multiple reasons for it. One of them was that uh, particularly going into parenthood, that we'd both be involved, highly involved in parenthood. So it's around tackling some of those gender roles in the way that women's work has been framed as the household work and men have been shut out from the work of care and a recognition that that's bad for both of us, actually, bad for men and it's bad for women. So um, we were both highly involved in the care of our children, especially before they went to school. I only worked two, sometimes three days a week, and Kim wasn't even working in those first five years. So we were around stacks and highly able to share the care of that, which was just I have to say, one of the best choices we could have made was this golden period, really. Since then, we've both been working part-time, about three days a week, but I've mostly been working from home or close to home. So that means one of us or both of us are around home a lot. And that's just really something our kids have taken for a given. So we've been involved in their their lives. But the other reason we, we made those decisions was to have time for other things, and particularly for the work of the household, and particularly what we would call household economy work. So not just uh, the work of dishes and stuff like that, all of which is essential and needs to be done, but actually also productive work like growing food and making things and thinking about how we work on the economy and the ecology of our household at sustainability as well. Because all of that takes time and that takes a fair bit of effort ongoing, being involved in growing food or uh, manufacturing food from drying food or bottling, stuff like that. All that's time-intensive activities. Well, let's talk about the Christian vision of the household that underpins, I think, your philosophy and the practices that you've taken up. Can you tell us about that? Well, Christian vision of the household, um, what we're talking about, I'd frame it more broadly as a Christian vision of material life or what we might call economic life 
And the basis of how we think about that is from the household. That's the starting point to think about that. And of course, that word economics is a household word. So the, our word economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia. And oikos is the Greek word for house. So economics is all about households and the affairs of households and material life. And so the Christian vision of material life is fundamentally one in which it's founded on the idea that there is no separation between material life and spiritual life, which might sound counterintuitive to a lot of people because a, a common assumption is that Christianity is concerned with spiritual stuff and isn't concerned with material stuff in the world. And is and even it, antibody, really. And often in a lot of people's conception is not just anti the body, but anti-matter and anti-environment. And unfortunately, there's enough parts of the church that would reinforce that picture yeah. as well, I have to yeah. say. But actually, that's not, uh, you can't read the Bible well and faithfully and, and maintain that view. Uh, one of the central core messages of both the Old and New Testament of the Bible is that our material life fundamentally influences our spiritual life and vice versa. Our spiritual life fundamentally influences our material life for better or for worse. So that movement can happen in both ways and it can happen for good. Uh, a healthy spiritual life can impact a healthy and flourishing material life and the structures of material life can influence a healthy, uh, more healthy spiritual life or an unhealthy spiritual life. And the other part of that picture is that material life happens in an ordered cosmos. So that the theological word we use for that is creation. The idea that it's been made by God and not just made, but ordered. And so in our modern language, there's an ecology to the cosmos, an ecology to the planet, which we must live within. And to live within it, we have to observe its conditions. So as long as we live within the conditions of that ecology, then we are observing the conditions of health. And as soon as we start to ignore, evade, or try and push beyond those limits of the ecology, then damage starts to happen to the system, damage starts to happen to us. So there, you can see I'm already talking about what we'd call environmental stuff. Uh, that That's mm. very clear. But, but it's I'm not separate, is it? But yeah. it's not. But I'm also actually talking about the more internal existential aspects of our life too. Once we, Because the same ideas play out as much for our, what we would call our emotional, mental, spiritual lives in terms of our material lives and existing with an ecology of health and we're, we're finding that. So the more that we go down a certain consumerist path, we're unwinding our human ecology, actually, at a very deep level. And all our, our mental health data in our culture is, is showing that. You're listening to Life of Faith, and we're hearing Justine's interview with Jonathan Cornford about everyday economics. At a very basic level, this is the idea that your household is an economy. But you're probably also getting the idea that your own household is deeply connected to everything else, that one can have flow-on effects on the other. Justin, you wrote a piece on this topic recently for Eureka Street. Yeah, and I will admit that I shamelessly pillaged Jonathan's <laughs> work. Sure, sure, you didn't mind. Yeah, well, the basic point of that article was that we talk about the economy, right? The market economy. But we talk about it as if there's only one when mm. really there's there's plenty of economies or households, right, that we inhabit. 
so I wrote about how discussion of the, the market economy tends to overlook the contributions of the care economy, the fact that workers don't spring fully formed out of the ground but require care and looking after in order for them to become productive workers who one day go to work and earn a salary and contribute to official productivity estimates, all that sort of stuff. And also we tend to overlook the environment, the fact that fresh air and fresh water are kind of critical contributions to us being able to turn up to work in the first place. Uh, And this in some ways brings us to the next part of my conversation with Jonathan, because he earlier mentioned this idea that we live in an ordered cosmos. So for Jonathan, this is the household, if you like, of God. And this would be the biggest household of all because it includes all the other households. So at this point of the interview, I asked Jonathan whether the God bit was kind of essential because it struck me that plenty of people would recognize how dependent we are, let's say, on the natural world. But might those same people be turned off by talk of an ordered cosmos or a creation? Here's what he had to say. I guess I would say there is a large amount of common ground before we get to the God part, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) However, I would also say that in the end, in lots of critical ways, the God part is central, but that still leaves a whole amount of ground for common dialogue. And so, for example, when you're talking about ecology, it means you have to pay attention to connections between things. And that's precisely what we see happening in the environmental movement or, you know, even just take permaculture, for example. Permaculture is a practice of growing food that's fundamentally based around recognizing and connections. So not just connections in what we'd call the natural world, but actually how we interact with that as humans and and how our relationships influence our um, connections with the natural world. So there's all these sorts of connections. And once you're doing that, we're not talking about abstract values anymore, about I value communitarian values and you value individual values. Actually, what we're talking about is something that we can both see and both have a language for discussing. So I think there is a large ground for common dialogue. But in the end, I think there are points, um, particularly when it comes to the some of the critical human existential questions of where do we find hope? How do we find hope? The God part of that picture does become essential. Now, I might want to be making changes that you describe um, at your place, but I'm pretty selfish. Does practicing good household economy, does it require someone to be a saint? (laughs) I hope not. Um, So uh, I can emphatically answer that no, uh, and it needs to not be no. It needs to be an answer that is an attainable yes for people, for humans. Uh, And what we're looking for is, I guess, the, the whole idea of, of Christianity, of what we're being called to in this vision is actually what all humanity is being called to. So we're being called to something, uh, a vision of health. So certainly not uh, necessary to be a saint, but it does require disciplines. There's no way of getting around moving in a different direction. Something that's counter to our culture requires disciplined effort and requires some quite conscious decisions and therefore it requires support. So it requires internal conviction and discipline and usually requires sharing that with someone else and then also having people who can help you with those disciplines, people who share those disciplines as well or something like them and you can explore a journey together. It's really hard to do on your own and much easier to do with communities of like-minded people who are thinking about and talking about 
uh, the same stuff, whether it's at the sort of deeper levels or, or just the basic day-to-day practical levels of, you know, what's a, a more energy efficient washing machine look like? You know, what's a good brand? You know, just basic information to the, some of the deeper questions as well. Jonathan runs Managum, a non-profit organisation through which he communicates and educates people on this vision of economic life. So I asked him, where does the name come from? So the name Managum comes from two things. The Managum is a eucalypt that's very common in southeastern Australia, the Eucalyptus viminalis. When we started Managum, we were in Melbourne, and that's Wurundjeri country. And the Warun in the Wurundjeri is their name for the Managum tree. Oh, right. Which is yep. an important, uh, so the leaves of, of the manigam tree were used for welcome for country ceremonies. And when Europeans came to the area, they named the, uh, this particular gum tree a manigam because it produces uh, a sweet white gum, which reminded them of the stories of the manna in the wilderness from the Bible. The story of the manna in the wilderness is, if you like, the archetypal biblical story of biblical economics. It lays down the, the vision, which is essentially an economy of enough. So right for people who don't know, the story is about the Israelites following Moses and being liberated across the, the Red Sea uh, out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness. Um, then after that, the problem is how they're going to live in the wilderness because they've got no food and they're given this manna that comes from heaven and it's, it's a sweet white substance. But the point of the story is not just that God provided for them, and that's part of the point, but it's that there's a conditions to this uh, story and that that's the conditions are that uh, they're to collect enough for themselves every day and they're to have a rest on the seventh day. So there has to be a limit. Uh, so they observe a Sabbath, uh, which means they've just come from slavery where there was no rest whatsoever in the economy that they're part of. In this economy, there must be rest for everyone. And they're not to store it up. And they've just come from Egypt where what they were doing, we're told, was building Pharaoh's store cities. So they, mm. were, they were enslaved to an accumulation economy, if you like. And here I in think the, we are too, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in the wilderness, they're told not to store it up because stored wealth goes rotten. So take as much as you need. And the ultimate vision is that none shall have too little, which is important. That's all about poverty and we we know what poverty is about but it's also that none shall have too much and right there at the beginning of one of these early stories in the bible there's this idea that there's something called too much i think that's a pretty um challenging and controversial idea for our culture that there might be something called too much because when we exceed a certain level in terms of our material lives then we're into the conditions of ill health and that's One way of summing up really what the Bible has to say about material and economic life is that material and economic life, uh, the stuff of food and good things and beautiful things and comfort is all good and that we should enjoy all these things. They are good for us and they're right to enjoy and we should fully enjoy them. But beyond a certain limit, they stop being good. And that's the story of the manor in the wilderness. So that's where Manigam gets its name from. Can the way of life of one household have ripple effects beyond it? And I think I'm really asking, how much is my responsibility? How much is system change? That's a great question because I think it is a real area, I think, of tension and confusion. So I would like to say a couple of things to try and put that in framework. One, just by me putting rooftop solar on, uh, by having one bag of waste in my bin each day, uh, by consuming less, is not going to have any impact on what's a pretty 
drastic global situation in terms of our overuse of the planet, nor is it going to particularly make much of a dent on structures of injustice in the world by consuming fair trade products or uh, making sure we're slavery-free products and so on. So it's not, I don't think it's a basis for change directly. And if you're thinking that by changing how you live, you're going to change the world, then I think that's a mistaken assumption. It's not. However, uh, there are plenty of other good reasons for it. One, it is a movement towards change in that in a longer term view of change, actually, uh, most big political movements of change always begin from people at the day to day level doing small things and building a movement. So, for example, the anti-slavery movement began with young Quaker girls uh, refusing sugar in their tea for about 20 years before anyone really started to take much notice that there's this whole problem with sugar and slavery. And then it built into a much bigger movement. And eventually, within 20 to 30 years, they'd abolished slavery. So we build social movements this way by building consciousness of others. Uh, you're doing something visibly, which it can be seen to be different, and therefore that has an effect. But actually, even if that weren't the case, even if the broader culture were, was too strong and going against us, actually the primary reason for me is to choose this way of living because it's a good way to live. It's actually good for us. Uh, it's not a sacrifice. It's actually where the conditions of health are by trying to find that space in between too little and too much. Uh, that is the place where we get to really enjoy the good things of life, be they material or be they relational or be they spiritual. Just to finish off, could you give us a little snapshot of some of those massive gains that you've experienced? Oh, the huge one is time. Time gain. So by choosing to work part-time has meant we've had time for Household economy stuff, which I, I've talked about as being productive, but it's actually really fulfilling work, often requiring creative and uh, application of intelligence, time for children and child raising. And that's been a great gift for us to have had really good time with our children as they're growing up. Time for work in the being involved in the community. And for us, that's been a really critical, particularly in our church community and our local community, being involved in other things. Then, you know, there's all the, the stuff of just the joys of eating some of your own food. Uh, it really is a, a joy. And there is a real mental health well-being improvement by living more, being more conscious of and living more into your sense of connection to the earth and with each other. And that that's not just some, you know, funny hippie concept. It, it's a real thing that the more you begin to see our connections as real connections, I think that does bring a deeper and richer sense to life as well. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. We hope you've enjoyed this dip into household economics. Thanks so much to Jonathan Cornford for speaking to me. Jonathan's book is Coming Home, Discipleship, Ecology and Everyday Economics. I'll get some links together for that book as well as Mana Gum, the non-profit that Jonathan runs, and also include a link to my Eureka Street article if you want to check that out as well. Here at CPX, we're all about the positive contribution of Christianity to public life with this economic vision outlined by Jonathan Cornford, a key example of that kind of thing. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please do share it with others or leave us a review or rating. It helps people discover our show. 
And please also consider becoming a supporter of CPX. Everything we do is funded by donations. And if you want to jump in on that, you can go to publicchristianity.org to do so. Next week. You ain't driving, are you? I steer a little, but the ranger do my sword. <laughs> this is my fourth year at the center. How about you? I started the whole damn thing. <laughs>